Would you open your Bibles to the book of James? We've kind of taken the scenic route through the book of James, and we're going to read verse 18 of chapter 3. Do you know that the chapters and verses were not inspired, right? Those were added later. This was just one letter that James was writing. So we're going to, I think his thought starts in 18 and rolls right into chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and that's what we're going to read this morning. And if you think, man, why does he have to read this whole thing? Um, it's the Word of God. So if all I do is read it, and that's all you get today, that's kind of enough because His Word is powerful It's supernatural, and a supernatural communication from God requires a supernatural approach to it. So I'm going to read it, and you just let the Lord, uh, let the Word wash over you, and then we're going to unpack a little bit about about what he's saying here. So in verse 18, chapter 3, he says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, I know that everybody thinks that the answer is Donald Trump, but that's actually, that's not. He goes on to answer that. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So much easier to blame some broken system than to look not at a broken system, but into a broken people. You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you've asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Oh man, I love verse six. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Lord, I ask for your um, wisdom this morning. And pray that... uh, Lord, I pray that the inadequacy of my eloquence will be overshadowed by the power of your spirit. And that your word will become alive to us and real. And that it will go from our heads into our hearts... In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It wasn't very long ago that the good people of Seneca, Nebraska, in a very sharply divided election, voted their town right out of existence. 
And I'm sure you guys are avid readers of the Omaha World Herald, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? Am I right, people? Am I right? <laughs> this town formed in 1888, had a very divided election uh, that they, whether they were going to keep their town or dissolve their town. And it was a 50-50 vote. In fact, one vote separated the winning and the losing. Now, in fairness, it was only 33 votes, but <laughs> churches have split with more votes than that, right? But that was how many people they had in the town. It was a small town. But this town, which had been a wonderful community, the kind of town that John Mellencamp sang about. In fact, Sandy Hansen, who runs the local museum, because uh, a town of 30 people needs a museum, right? <laughs> she described, like, when asked by the reporter of the Omaha World Herald, well, what, is a, what does a town mean? And she said that it, it's neighbors coming together for the good of each other. And she used a story to describe that, how it used to be, that her husband had passed away and he was in Texas and she had to go all the way to Texas to get him and she brought his ashes back and she thought she would just do a quiet little burial and no ceremony, but a town like that, if you're in a small town, you know that's not going to happen. They watered her lawn, they cut her grass. When she got back, they had meals prepared for her and they made it the little town hall that they had poured all their little money together to build this town hall together. They had a, a memorial service. And, and she said that when asked, how, like, how did that make you feel? She said, it made me feel warm and wanted the way you're supposed to feel. It felt like home. And somehow that town went from warm and wanted and home to the sheriff being called in to try to calm down everybody from hurting each other over an election to whether they were going to dissolve the town or not. Uh, indisputably, it started because the town council, which is what, four people, like 25% of the population, um, put together an ordinance saying it was about animals in town and how many you could have on your property, and, and from that it just went completely downhill to the point where the buildings exist, but the town doesn't because they've had to sell the snow plows. They've had to sell the things that they do together they no longer own, and now they're all on their own. And the, the writer for the World Herald, when asked, like, why did you go all the way out? Because this is a long ways. If you've been through Nebraska, you know that going east to west is just too much. So he went all the way out into the panhandle to, to, to cover this story. But what he said that really compelled him was he was taken by the idea of what's happening to our democracy in America, that what used to happen was we would come together around shared values and, and, and have conversations. And, and there in this little town, he felt like was this little microcosm example of what's happening at a national level, which was, well, we don't like the way this went, so we're just going to blow the whole thing up and just dissolve the whole thing. And he was wondering, how did we get here? Now, the problem is, is he can't answer that question if he's not going to the Word of God. All the, the answers of man are, are woefully inadequate. I mean, God knows our politicians can't answer it. And the U.S. media, they're complicit. They can't answer the question. But the Bible says you can try to make it about this thing or that or make it about some broken system out there. But what James says is the reason that you fight and quarrel at a macro and at a micro is because of your passions inside of you 
It's not a broken system, it's a broken person. And in James chapter 4, 318 through 412, I feel like that what James really does is take community, what a Christian community could be and feel and do. Like the first three chapters, it's sort of in the background, but in chapter 4, he moves it right into the front. When he says, you who sows peace, he's talking about righteousness. He's moving it to a group setting, not an individual setting here. And what he's doing, if you look at this, and this is the the, the little uh, outline that we're going to follow here, is I think that he shows us, number one, the necessity of a Christian community, why it's so important that we can't fix a government, but what we can do, what we, where our voice is, is in a church, in a family, the necessity of it. He shows us the roadblocks from it. And I believe he's also showing us how we break down those barriers from those roadblocks, the necessity of it. Righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. It's not immediately obvious, but if you look at what he's saying, if you have a harvest, okay, I've seen some of you guys have your little farmer's market pictures, okay? There's harvest happening there. But what do the, the harvest start with? A seed. And he's saying the seed that grows righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace together. The, the, the necessity of this is so critical and by, you, hear, you, know, you hear scholars, and by scholars, I mean people that are smarter than me. When they say that, the, the, they'll talk about the full lexical range of a word. Okay? And what that simply means is, in some cases, righteousness means being right with God. And in some cases, it means being right with each other. And in other cases, it means being just right in general. But James, when he uses it, he's using the full lexical range of the word. Right with God and right with each other that the harvest of righteousness with each other is sown by those who are making peace. And if you think about the importance of what he's saying here, it's that in our groups together, as much as I want to say that my beliefs are about my rational, you know, this is my ration, it's not so much that as much as it is about our relationships. Think about the families that you grew up in. If you're, if you're a kid, one of the things you probably promise at some point in your life, looking into a mirror, is I'll never be like my dad. <laughs> and if you're in your 20s, you're probably still naive enough to believe that. But sometime around 45, you're going to do something. Or you're going to say something, and you're going to be like, oh, my God, my dad. <laughs> my mom would totally do that. And what it's saying is what social science is proving is that we are a product of our relationships. We're a product of the community around us, the groups that we associate with. The Bible talks about bad company corrupts good morals. But our relationships together are so important because they form the very concrete foundation of who we are. And it's what righteousness grows out of. Being in a, put it in a different way, if you're not involved in a supernatural relationship with supernatural, full of the spirit people, you won't experience supernatural changes in your lives. When the Bible talks about 
In James 5, to confess your sins to one another. Galatians 2, bear one another's burdens. Hebrews 3, encourage one another. The New Testament is full of language, of relationship, of community that isn't us sitting in a room facing forward. It's us sitting across from each other in community. There's nothing wrong with this. This is your watering hole. But this isn't what supernaturally transforms us. What supernaturally transforms us is is community with each other. And more than ever, in, in the world around us, we need supernatural communities of brothers and sisters in Christ bearing one another's burdens. There's some of us in here this morning that your burden is so great, you cannot bear it. And you've walked in and walked out and maybe nobody even said hello to you here but it's because we've come to this setting. If this is the only, if we're a one-trick pony and this is the only trick we have, it is amazing and it's great for us to worship corporately and to sing and to come and listen to the word of God, but it's woefully inadequate for growing righteousness in our lives. Bless you. <laughs> just want to acknowledge that was an awesome sneeze. <laughs> Coming together is so important in a world, in the world that we're in right now. Because the government is falling apart. It's, and it's like, well, if it just seems like it's falling apart. Well, that's kind of because it is. But the church was designed for more than that. The church was designed for way greater than that. Designed, and this is about as important as I can make it, is to say what Jesus said in John 17 when he said that, just as I, in verse 21, and you are one, talking about his father, that I am in you and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. When James talks about this group of us together, he's talking about a unity and a harmony that the world knows nothing of. And here's how important it is. It's the one tool that he gave us to tell the love story of Jesus to the world. No wonder Satan wants to destroy it. No wonder every tool, if you're Satan and you've just heard what Jesus said, this is the most important thing. I'm going to give you this one tool way better than a chick track, way better than a crusade, way better than the best fog, smoke, and lights on a stage, is you and your brothers and sisters in a circle, in a community, working together in a place where you feel warm and wanted that feels like home. And that's how I'm going to let them know that I, that's the proof that you sent, that I was sent by the Father. That. So Satan will throw some roadblocks to that, wouldn't he? If I were Satan, that's a, let's get rid of that. And the roadblocks are, are pretty obvious. Some are not quite as obvious. When my daughter was 10 years old, Lauren, where are you, Lauren? Oh, hi. Sorry, I was looking over there. Don't know how I couldn't see you, right? Um, <laughs> do you remember when you were 10 and your little birthday party? We just talked about this year, already, remember? Uh, and the birthday party was you were really stressed because all of your friends were coming together. So you had your school friends, you had your church friends, 
had your neighborhood friends. And all these little circles were coming together, and they were going to be running into each other. And so she, at 10 years old, put together a seating chart, basically. You'll sit here, and you'll sit here, so that everybody could get along. But at 10 years old, that's such a profound realization that these circles are separate from each other and rarely intersect with each other. And so what it allows us to do is be an inch deep and a mile wide with our relationships because I've got this group and this group, and you know, you've got your neighborhood group, and we're doing, like, we're doing the fall fest. We're doing all, there's, so we've got to be able to maintain that. And then I've got my school thing, and I've got to be able to maintain that. And the next thing you know, we're literally running crazy trying to keep up with just a little bit of this community and a little bit of that community. And we've diluted it so much that we never have the opportunity to go deep into the place where we feel warm and wanted. Because warm and wanted just takes time. It takes repetition. James would say that the cause of it is actually much more spiritual than what I just described to you practically when he says that the reason is real simple. The reason you're quarreling is that it's your passions. Now, the word passions is the word hedonai, which is where we get our word hedonism, and it's, it's basically the, simple, the simplest definition I can give it is my life for me. It's, it's me and my thing, my life for me, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus said, which was my life for you. And when my life is for me, what that ends up doing is then when I get mad in this circle, this is why the circles are kind of risky, is I can go to the different circle. If my feelings got hurt in this circle, I go to this circle, but it never allows me the opportunity to be candid to really go deep with someone because my pride ultimately will say, I don't want to hear that. I really don't like that. <laughs> I mean, you guys know that I worked in the music world for way too long. I'm still in the support group. Um, but one of the things that we learned was the more famous an artist becomes, the more isolated they become. And the reason is really super practical. If I'm famous, I have a line of people who want to talk to me. And if you say something I don't want to hear, I get to go to the next person in line. And it's just very practical. It's a very natural way that humans roll. So what ends up happening is you become so isolated because no one has the permission to tell you the truth anymore. When we started my uh, management company in 2000 and whatever, just after the 1900s, um, I had this idea that what if we just started with, like, and we had to start with a brand new band because an established band would already know that they could fire me if I told them the truth. We start with a little baby band, and what if they just thought that was the culture? They just thought that's how it worked, was everybody's told everybody the truth. And it turned into this really long and uh, equitable relationship where we were truthful with one another. And you know why we were? Because it wasn't that we didn't have conflict. Conflict is common when candor is safe. Conflict is common when candor is safe. And we created an environment where you could be safe to be honest. And you know what it meant for me was crucifying the cause behind the cause, not just my passions and me for me and what I want and my thing, but the pride behind it. Because pride doesn't like to be told what to do. The people of Seneca, Nebraska, they didn't want anybody telling them what to do. That's a perfectly American idea, but a counter-biblical. That my life for me 
is the exact opposite of what Jesus did. And frankly, it's the exact opposite of how the world works in general. If you are alive sitting in here today, it is because some mama gave her life for you. That a woman said, not my body, my choice, but said, my life for you. And for the first 18 years of your life, somebody, in some cases, two somebodies, said, death to my choices, death to my time, (laughs) death to my money. God knows that. (laughs) You kids are expensive. You eat every day. (laughs) Because it's how the world works. My life for you is the way that Jesus worked. And it requires literally putting our pride on the altar and allowing it to be crushed and for humility to rise inside of us. Bob Goff, he he simplified it in a way that I can't when he said that his whole goal for life, and you've heard me say it before, is tomorrow morning I want to wake up and be just the next most humblest version of Bob. And tomorrow morning I want to wake up and tomorrow I really want to be just the next most humblest version of Darren. Sowing peace out of humility, letting the pride, because what does it say that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? And those barriers, we've got to knock them down, and for the sake of time, I want to give you a quick, I'm going to give you a quick little uh, synopsis of what spiritual pride looks like, and we don't normally do it this way, so I don't want it to feel too academic, but as I was reading through this, it was a book, um, I'm sure a lot of you guys, when you get done reading the Omaha World Herald or reading books by Jonathan Edwards, um, but a book a long time ago that he wrote about what causes death to revival. And he was talking about there were two or three great revivals during his time, and what killed them all, he said, was pride. It was people suddenly starting to battle and to fight. It was God was moving, and it was amazing, and people began to fight and to quarrel and to war. And so spiritual pride is what he says. Now, I have, I've sort of modernized the language. If you were to read this in its original text, it's a lot of these, thous, and verilies. But here's what I'd like for us to do for just for this, let's say, five minutes. Give yourself a little bit of an inventory here. There's going to be six of these. He says that spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than your own. But humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own faults than others'. Number two, pride leads you when you speak of others' faults to have an air of contempt and disdain. But humility, whenever you speak of others' faults, you do it with grief and with mercy. Number three, pride leads you quickly to separate from people that you've criticized or who criticize you. You're cold to them. But humility sticks with people even in difficult relationships. Number four, the proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief because he can't distinguish between major and minor because every point is major. But humility knows when to hold them and when to fold them. I'm sorry. No, he's flexible. Five, pride either loves to confront because you like winning or refuses to confront because you don't like controversy. Do you see how pride could either be over-confrontational or under-confrontational? Humility, let's see, number five, let's do uh, 
let's say, yeah, humble confronts when it's necessary, but does so with contrition. Number six, the last one, the proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves. They're, sil- they're filled with self-pity. And here's why, by the way. This is why that's pride. Even self-pity is pride. Because you're so sure that you know how life ought to go. And it didn't go the way that you thought it was going to go. And it's pride. It's pride with a sad face. They're so sure that they deserve a good life. That, you see what I'm saying? That, that, that becomes a form of pride. But the humble think that I should be cast off but only by God's grace am I living and I don't know what's best for me, but God does. Now think about that as an inventory for where you are right now. And if you begin to see those and just practically pick them apart, you can see how relationships can be broken in half because if I didn't like it and I was criticized, I'm gone. Or because I was afraid to say something because I didn't want to rock the boat, so I didn't confront at all, or the other way around, which is the, well, I'm just honest, that's just how I am. That's, by the way, a really red flag. <laughs> if you say those sentences, just a little red flag there. Um, because it's always truth and love. The barrier to community is pride. The anecdote of how we break it down then is humility. And I suppose it probably would be helpful to define humility. Because humility if you're like an American, you think humility is just I'm shy and demure, right? I'm just, he's so humble. He's just so quiet and just so, but I'm not so sure that's the biblical definition of, of humility. Think about Moses. Well, actually, look, look at James, what James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we start with that. I know we live in a world where most people don't believe in the devil, but if you don't and you believe in Jesus, understand that Jesus believed in the devil. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. So the the darkest, most powerful evil force on the earth, James says, stand up to him. And if you're not afraid of him, you ain't afraid of anybody. When God uh, told Moses to go to Pharaoh, what did he, he says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Say to Pharaoh, the strongest military force on the planet at the time, the, the, the biggest economic force on the planet at the time, and say to him, I want you to take the very machine that, that finances your support, the, the, the force of your economic power and your military superiority, and let them go without any consequence or remuner, uh, remuneration, and, let it, and do it right now. And the Bible said that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. So I feel like that our definition of humility might not be quite accurate. I think we could, we could simplify it down to the point when he says to think not more highly of yourself than you ought, Romans 12, which also thinks to not think more lowly of yourself than you are. It simply means believing the truth about yourself. And the truth is that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It means to not think less of yourself as much as it means to just think of yourself less. Because you have not a lack of confidence, you've got an overabundance of confidence because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that when that humility rises inside of you, it's based solely on the gospel of Jesus Christ looking throughout the entire universe and saying, I'm choosing you. 
I have chosen through the stars and the galaxies. I have looked through and chosen you. You can say with confidence that the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. That is not to be demure. That is literally an overabundance of confidence in Christ. And humility doesn't mean to think less of yourself then. It just means literally to think of yourself less. And you can do that when you know that God is working all things together for the good of those that love him. You can do that when you know that today I'm going to die a thousand little deaths. My pride here, my ten minutes I gave up here, I, I interrupted here, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving my life for you, my life for you. Then every time my pride dies, you know what rises up when the seed goes into the ground? A resurrection of supernatural, godly righteousness and community. Every death in the kingdom of God is followed by a resurrection. My point for you this morning in the few minutes that we have left for us is our country is about to come to the end of itself when we're going to stop finally looking to the government to save us. One of the greatest joys of being in a country like Haiti, for instance, it didn't even occur to them to wait for the government to help them because they weren't coming. We've almost had the exact opposite. We've had a false sense of security in that. And on November 9th, you're going to wake up and God is not going to say, oh, crap. I can't believe I didn't see that coming. It's just not how it's going to go. But we have an opportunity as the, the, the bride of Christ. When he talks about you adulterous people in there, he actually, it's translated as adulterous people, plural, but the original is adulterous. He's talking in a female. He's literally talking about the love. It's a clue to the love story of Jesus. The, the picture of a, a husband longing for his wife. A love that is deep and profound and Michael Bolton strong. <laughs> and when we come together understanding that our God loves us in that way, what if, as a family of believers, that we've found little small pockets of community so deep and so profound that when they finally say, oh, that isn't working, it's not happening, it's not working that way, they can look to churches here and around the world and say, inside of those relationships, I see what I want, warm and wanted and loved. Seneca, Nebraska fell apart because of the quarreling, because of their passions inside of them. But we, as followers of Jesus, can be welded together in a way profoundly and supernaturally. There's a story of another city that I think is a beautiful example. Ben and I were kind of talking about this this week. Six years ago when the earthquake rocked Haiti and killed a quarter of a million people, our little community down there, they came together they took what bed sheets they had and they brought what food they had and they shared it together and it was this beautiful example of love. It wasn't that they had extra food. They had everything they had. We were together and we're loving each other. 
And it was a lot like Acts chapter 2 when you see the beautiful birth of a church right there that encountered Christ and him crucified and resurrected and they came together and they loved each other and they served each other. They, they did the hard work of community. But the community can't just be about sitting in a circle and navel-gazing and us four no more. And what happened six years ago in Jacmel, Haiti, was these people came together and they loved each other. And they, but you know what they did? They sat and they waited for someone to help them. And that was our failure. We'd been there for three or four years before that. It was our failure not teaching them leadership about literally allowing the gospel to grow inside of them and teach them about not just us but reaching to the world. This time, you've seen some of the pictures we've shared on social networking. I wonder if you've noticed that there are no white people in those pictures. It's Haitians. It's those little, listen, the little boys and girls that six years ago were 10, 11, 12 are now 18, 19, and 20. They're getting on their little motos and they're driving out to the border and they're buying food. They're coming together at the church and they, they sandbagged and they, they put food in. This might seem intuitive to you, but if you don't understand the gospel, it is not intuitive. We saw it happen. They're loading up little pickups and they're taking, we're feeding 400 families. And when I say we, I don't just mean us, I mean them. We were able to provide the finances for it, but they're the ones providing the manpower because the power of a gospel community doesn't just look internally for us. It understands that when Jesus said, give and it shall be given, press down, he's talking about love. When you give out, it will automatically be replaced, running over, pressed down, shaken together. And I really want that for us. Right now, uh, James Boyd is with us here. There are 60 adults in our church fellowship that are meeting in what we've called deeper groups. Deeper, deeper with him and deeper with each other. And it's the hard work of community. Because there are moments, and I'll bet if I were to get you to raise your hands in your group, someone in your group has ticked you off. And you know what I want to do when that happens? I want to be like a real famous artist and say, well, i got people standing in line. I'll go talk to someone else. I wouldn't say that out loud, of course, but, but you press through. And when you do the hard work of relationship, not in one day, in two days, not in two months or three months, but years of digging deep with each other. You, you can look around and see God has been very kind to this fellowship. We've grown in numbers. But my hope is that you've got a circle somewhere, and if you don't have one, that you could find one here a circle that is your main circle. There will be others. I understand that. You're going to have your work circle. You have your neighborhood. But there's a circle that when you come together, that when it hits the fan, that you've got somebody to lean on. Not if, but when. That you can go deep with each other and with Jesus and not just in a circle for each other, but the, the power and the, the, the supernatural that raised Christ from the dead that dwells in you will then begin to reach to your neighbor's to your neighborhood and to the town and, and whatever happens, I don't know with an election, but I know this, that Jesus Christ, I believe he said that the church, the local church is the hope of the world. Him expressed through this and through us. It's happening right now and if you're not involved in a group like that, it's totally possible. We'd like to ask you to prayerfully consider on Sunday mornings, we have every Sunday at 9 a.m., there's a, a group that's been meeting that uh, Donna Holly have been leading right here because we thought we know everybody's busy and it's hard, so we'll just give you Sunday morning then. 
Maybe you need a Friday night or maybe you need a Sunday. But James, would you stand up? We didn't ask you. I didn't tell you he was going to do this. But find James afterwards. He's going to be right here. And if, you th- if what I'm talking to you is talking to your soul this morning and you don't have that feeling, come find James. And if there's a long line or whatever, James at conduitchurch.com. James at conduitchurch.com. So thanks, man. Okay, look, I- I've gone long enough. Kids are like, thank God he knew it. He, he went too long. <laughs> it's okay, I know it. I was a kid. I just want everybody to have the opportunity to experience that kind of relationship. And some of you already have it. Some of you have it at a different church. That's actually okay. There are no borders and barriers in the kingdom of God. I just want, if you don't have it, to challenge you to have, to take that step of courage because that's what it really takes. Courage to be risk rejection. Courage to have to take that step. Courage to say, I've already done this once before and it didn't work and it was stupid. Courage to say, maybe I want to try this again. Would you prayerfully consider that this morning? Father, would you give us insight and uh, I am thankful for what you've done in our church family already. The, The relationships are here. I've seen it happening. I just... I just know in my heart that you want to do more and more and more of that. More homes that are open to your spirit to become the supernatural relationship building, righteous, growing atmospheres. Lord, we need to do it for our children, for each other, and for the world. It's in your name that we pray.